From Feature Story News in New York, I'm Nick Harper. Iran's supreme leader has vowed to avenge the killing of General Qassem Soleimani. The commander of Iran's elite Quds force was killed by an airstrike at the Baghdad airport, ordered by the US President Donald Trump. FSN's US correspondent Rachel Silverman has the details. Tens of thousands of Iranians are holding rallies to denounce the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Three days of national mourning have started in Iran, with the country's foreign minister calling the attack an act of international terrorism and its supreme leader saying Iran will double resistance against the U.S. and Israel. Hundreds of U.S. troops arrived in Kuwait hours before the airstrike that killed Soleimani. The U.S. president and secretary of state saying the airstrike was carried out in response to an imminent threat from General Soleimani and the forces he led, the UN Secretary General calling for maximum restraint on all sides. The southeast of Australia is under evacuation orders as bushfires continue to threaten towns and properties. Thousands of people are still stranded with supplies running low and escape routes jammed with non-moving traffic. FSN's Arthur Stevens reports from Melbourne. The evacuation of the communities and surrounds in the south of New South Wales and the northeast and east of Victoria continues, with potentially up to 60,000 people likely to be moved out. The evacuations come as Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who's been touring devastated areas, was jeered and chased out of Canago, with locals telling him he should be ashamed of himself after leaving the country to burn whilst he went on a Christmas holiday in Hawaii. On Friday, local firefighters were joined by 39 others and two liaison officers from the U.S., while another 61 from the U.S. and 10 from Canada should be on the fire ground next week. The United Nations World Food Programme has identified 15 countries at risk of food emergency. The agency says that sub-Saharan African countries like Zimbabwe, South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo are facing food insecurity. FSN's Isabel Nakiria reports. The WFP reports millions of people are uncertain of where their next meal will come from. Sub-Saharan Africa dominates the region with urgent need of attention, with children and women facing crisis. The UN Food Agency says the region is experiencing the worst drought, leaving people food insecure. These emergencies have crippled economies with half the population in Zimbabwe short of food. In South Sudan, local conflicts has displaced 3.8 million people and floods destroyed tons of cereals. The WFP warns levels of hunger are expected to worsen in the coming months unless assistance is increased to save and change lives. The agency estimates it will require more than $10 billion to fully fund its operations in more than 80 countries around the world this year. From bureaus worldwide, this is FSN. I'm little teapot, short and stout. Here is my handle and here is my spout. No, no, like this. When I get all steamed up, then I shout, tip me over and pour me out. <laughs> this is WWE superstar Roman Reigns. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Activated by contract termination. Rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. She's blessed to be a Bible reading, gun-toting, Air Force veteran, wife, and mom. 
Righteously American. What a news day. I was literally just, I, I'm I'm galloping to try to keep all of it in order because there's so much that we could discuss today, but we have we have one hour basically. And I need to get to a couple of things. There's two really huge stories. The first one is this ad on, well, maybe you don't consider that the first one. Maybe in your mind the first one is the strikes on Iran and the killing of General Soleimani, who was what some people, what some news media people call, he was a viceroy of sorts. In other words, the number two man in Iran. And uh, we've gone in and we've literally, it wasn't an accident. We killed him on purpose. Uh, so th- this is this is news. And we're going to talk about it, obviously. And then there's this story about um, the white privilege ad on Facebook. And this is a huge story to me because this is a progression. I actually did a blog post about it. It's over at StaceyOnTheRight.com. And as soon as that, like, as I was crafting that this morning, it's not long, but it has a bunch of info in it. It's a good post. Um, I noticed immediately that I had, you know, how you make one post, and then if you search, you can find, like, other things that you've posted about it. Well, I actually did this huge video about the White Privilege Conference when they first started having them, and this was years ago, uh, in 2014. So I have that in the post as well. If you want to check that out, it's in the show notes. It's also posted over on Facebook and my Twitter feed. So we're going to discuss both of those. And the title for today's show about, you know, what's your intersectional, quote, white privilege score. I took the test and I got the info. So let's do that one last. Let's go into the first story, which is that General Suleiman has been taken out by American forces uh, a rocket attack, and this was on purpose. And apparently, uh, pretty predictably, Lindsey Graham has popped up. And you guys know I have this love hate with Lindsey Graham because when the John McCain, the, the ghost of John McCain, left him and released him, um, you know, it made it so that he could be more free. And we saw this amazing metamorphosis of of Lindsey Graham. He defended uh, the Supreme Court justice. Well, he was the nominee at the time. Um, Kavanaugh and he really made a, a just it was just a beautiful display of righteous indignation and it, it kindled the hearts of a lot of Americans and it was really it was something and uh, then he kind of went back into his little shell and he was in there for a while and just when we were beginning to give up hope he came back out again and so then when it comes to wartime declarations and uh, you know the president acting outside of congressional authorization which by the way, if you're angry at Trump acting without a congressional authorization, then were you angry the thousands of times that President Obama droned people into the, the afterlife without a congressional authorization? All the troops that he sent overseas and the president before that, which was Bush, who operated without a congressional authorization. This has been a problem for a while. I don't have a problem with it because it's President Trump. I have a problem with it because two things, really. We have a intelligence apparatus and a congressional body that is so mistrustworthy, untrustworthy, that the president cannot 
confide in them. He can't take them into his confidence. So he told Lindsey Graham, of course, a few days ago that they were going to do this strike, but he couldn't tell Nancy Pelosi because she would have leaked it to the media. So there's a, there's a lot of problems here. It's not just one pretty little thing. And I, I understand that the president is the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces, but as you guys know, I have, I've evolved, if you will, um, in, in the way that I'm, I'm not always excited when I see us kicking sand back in the faces of these people in the Middle East. And, and we're going to get to that. I'll tell you why. But first, let's just catch everybody up. I want to be on the same page. Um, well, first of all, yeah, I want to be on the same page for, for this whole discussion. Um, so let me, let me get my little computer switched over here. Uh, first, we're going to listen to Lindsey Graham. And I, I just want you to listen with a dispassionate ear to what he's saying and see if you catch anything. Because the conversation that we have can't just be, oh, we knew he was going to kill people, so we took him out, period, whoa, you know, the military rocks. We know the military rocks. We know that we have the strongest fighting force. We know that we're on the cutting edge of military technology. We know that, you know, like, let's not act like we don't know that stuff and we don't believe it. I'm a veteran, fourth-generation military veteran. I own guns. I enjoy shooting them. I like taking pictures with them, and I like kicking butt. I like to win. I think our military can crush any foe if they have the proper objective and strategic mission and they're, uh, they understand what they're doing and we know what they're doing and we followed our, con our uh, constitutional authorities in getting that done. But this is bigger than what we know or our support of the military. Let's just put the baseline out there. We're not liberals. We support our military and we don't believe in losing. Now what? Let's listen to Lindsey Graham. I want to see if you hear what I hear. Well, he's killed, I mean, the, the cone-shaped IEDs that killed over 600 Americans came from, uh, came from Iran. Uh, how significant is this? Uh, we killed the most powerful man in Iran short of the Ayatollah. Uh, he was the right fist of the Ayatollah, and we took the Ayatollah's arm off. Um, but here's, this is not an act of revenge for what he'd done in the past. This was a preemptive defensive strike planned to take out the organizer of attacks yet to come. The intelligence was very strong that Soleimani was orchestrating chaos in Iraq at our expense and throughout the region. The president was informed of these potential attacks and he uh, acted. This was a defensive strike to neutralize future attacks that were, be that were being planned and executed by Soleimani and the popular mobilization front the Shiite militias in Iraq. So this isn't a, an act of revenge for all of the troops that we have who live here in the United States or have been sent home from the, the sand pits and they're missing arms and legs. Apparently the cone-shaped IEDs are a special gift to American troops from Suleiman. And no previous president has done anything about it. They know that he's the one who, who initiates these things. They know that he's a bad actor and an operator who he's really against us being in the Middle East. We know that he's a Iran is a state sponsor of terror, obviously. So this whole thing, none of these are new things, but you got to listen to what he's saying. He's specifically outlining that there's something really, really um, there's something different about the way that President Trump is approaching this and that they have intel that shows that they were actually going to move forward with new attacks on Americans and American soldiers. And in order to prevent that, they decided, you know what, we know where he is. He's in our area of operations. We can take him out, so we're going to go ahead and do it. So that's what I heard there. But he goes on 
And he says some things that are, some of them are truthful. Some of them are interesting, depending on where you stand. Some of them are concerning. So here's the rest. And it's a, it's a little lengthy, but I need you to hear what he's saying so we can have this discussion about exactly what is it that, what is it that our troops are there for? What is it that we're there for? And what is the effective mechanism by which we can achieve our aims in the Middle East? Oh, wait, what are our aims in the Middle East? Here he is. It's cut to. Well, what I'm trying to do is create deterrence. So this was a preemptive attack to let everybody in the world know from North Korea, just anybody else, that if you come after Americans on President Trump's watch, you do so at your peril. All the things that Suleimani had done in the past were real, but he's not dead today because of what he did in the past. He's dead today because he miscalculated what President Trump would do regarding future attacks. So what are they thinking about in Tehran right now? Revenge. What are they thinking about inside Iraq? All of these Shiite militias are going to have three days of mourning. What kind of command and control do they have regarding Tehran? Mm -hmm. Who makes the decisions to strike, and what kind of strikes are they uh, contemplating? How would you stop retaliation through deterrence? What's the one thing that the regime can't afford to lose? Oil. The ability to refine oil. So what President Trump has done is up the ante as high as you can up it. He's killed the most consequential military leader in Iran. He's killed the, the guy who's spreading terror throughout the world. When you say that Iran is the largest state sponsor of terrorism, the question is who leads that effort? It was Soleimani. They will not let this go unanswered. This is what I'm thinking. I, I, I was briefed about the, the potential operation when I was down in Florida. I appreciate being brought into the orbit. I really appreciate President Trump letting the world know you cannot kill an American without impunity. We will stand up for our people, and that is an absolutely essential message. But now, what will change Iran's calculation? How we respond? They're going to come after us with a vengeance if we do not reset the table pretty quickly. And if I were the president, I would put on the table targets in Iran, not Iraq and Syria, economic targets that would crush the economy. The maximum pressure campaign has worked. What would take it to the next level would be destroy the ability of the Iranians uh, to refine oil and then sell it. The oil refineries are the last thing they have in terms of an economy. So Lindsey Graham is moving from this strike, this rocket strike, to take out the general – And then he wants to move into economic sanctions of the most severe kind to ensure that they are crippled um, where they stand. Now, you guys know that, I mean, this is, this is a tough discussion to have because I've been, I've been researching and looking into exactly what the impact of our being in the Middle East has wrought, not just on American troops, soldiers, veterans, et cetera. We have a huge homeless population of veterans. The more tours they do overseas in the sand pit, the more consecutive tours, back-to-back tours, the more likely it is that they're going to have PTSD, uh, broken marriages, broken homes, you know, a lack of support system, and then drug abuse, and and often that turns into homelessness. 
and then they become persistently homeless. And then we have, of course, the suicide rate, which is the correct number is actually 17. It's not 22 a day. It's 17. That number reflects only the veterans themselves who are killing themselves. And that's over 6,100 a year who are killing themselves. Um, and they're doing that because they, they don't see any other way of reentering society. They've had too many deployments to just come back here and worry about whether or not they're going to sit in traffic for an extra 10 minutes. They're just operationally at such a heightened level. The cortisol level is so high for such a sustained period of time that they can't operate at the normal rate where we sit around and complain about the weather or, you know, a slight increase in the, you know, uh, rate of, of renewing our car tags or something like that. And these kinds of concerns are so minimal to them when they've been literally 24 hours a day feeding on adrenaline, not eating properly, not taking care of their bodies and living in a heightened state of anxiety and stress, fight or flight mode for month after month and then year after year and multiple deployments. And they come back here and they're unable to come back down. And so this is a concern for me as a veteran. It's a concern for me as an American. It's a concern for me as a taxpayer. And it's the speech that I gave with the, the day that I went to, to the White House Christmas party and, and I got to go to the reception and all of that. And it was so much fun. Right after that, I gave a speech. Um, and it was about the moral and financial implications of endless war in the Middle East. And so this isn't someplace I come to lightly, and I'm not some tree-hugging, you know, pacifist. You guys know this. I believe in self-defense. I believe in just wars. I, I understand what the Bible says about a certain amount of time that God gives us grace for a nation to repent. And then when he sends a righteous nation in to wipe out a ungodly nation— it is not only his will and the fulfillment of prophecy, but it is as, as, as it is ordained to be exactly as he has foretold it to be, it is his will. So there isn't any of that going on, okay? I'm not some, um, you know, it's, this isn't a flight of fancy for me or I've just changed my mind or I've evolved. I use that term because that's the term that Barack Obama used a lot and it's kind of tongue-in-cheek whenever I say I've evolved on something, I'm referring to how he basically just lied to people and then claimed to have evolved later. So, you know, when you hear me say that, just understand there's a little bit of mockery going on there for uh, President Obama, former President Obama. So there comes a time when you look at a situation and you say, what's our mission? Right now, if you ask our troops that, they don't know. If you ask our military people that, they don't know. Now, if you say to them, the 82nd Airborne, who just went in and rained down terror on, you know, that military, the, or there was a little militia uprising, terrorists, a group of terrorists who were attacking our embassy, and the 82nd Airborne went in, and then some Marines also. If you ask them what their mission was, it was to crush what appeared to be an, an armed insurrection against the American embassy. They would all tell you that. They understood that's what that was. They knew why they went there. They went there. They accomplished the mission. It's over. If you ask those same individuals who've been on multiple deployments to the Middle East, to Afghanistan specifically, but anywhere in the Middle East, and you ask them, well, what are you there for? What, what were you guys in Syria for? They're much more vague on why they were there. And so my issue with this is not that President Trump sent troops in without a congressional authorization. All of the presidents have been doing that. I have a problem with these large troop movements without congressional authorization that result in years and years and years, 18 years in Afghanistan, and $45 billion a month is what we spend in Afghanistan, and we've spent $8 trillion there, and meanwhile, we have basically a wide-open southern border 
with terrorists attempting to come over. So far, we've been able to stop them. We have people from uh, the continent of Africa, people from Sri Lanka, people from places that have no no connection to America. They travel to Mexico so they can get in here because, I mean, it's easier than flying in here. They can fly into Mexico City and just cross the southern border. And that way they don't have to worry about visa restrictions. If they come in through a regular airport flying directly into the United States, they have visa restrictions. So the exhaustion that I'm experiencing right now is just a drop. It's like a pinprick compared to the exhaustion experienced by the family members of active duty soldiers and the active duty soldiers themselves. We are overtaxed. We have too many foreign entanglements in the Middle East. The president ran on reducing some of those. Now, I understand what he's doing here. So this, this is not me castigating the president. I understand what he's doing. I, I applaud him defending our embassy there. He, what was he supposed to do? Because he doesn't want new foreign entanglements. He's supposed to leave the people in the embassy there to be held hostage and then killed and raped after they're dead and their naked bodies drugged through the streets like what happened to our last people in, in Libya and Benghazi where, where Hillary Clinton was the one who was responsible for that and Barack Obama and they just went to bed. They just went to bed, my friends, and let those people die. So, yes, absolutely he should defend our embassy. But there's a bigger question here. And as I was going through and trying to hear, like, what are other people saying about this? What is the reaction? You guys know I'm a Tucker Carlson fangirl, and he was totally on point here. I want you to hear what he had to say. And then again, just listen to what he's talking about and then kind of compare it to what you heard from Lindsey Graham when he was talking. Here we go with Tucker Carlson. Well, the last time we took John Bolton's advice in the region, Iran became far more powerful than it was before, before we took John Bolton's advice. Why? Because things are never quite as simple as they claim they are in Washington. In this case, the very people demanding action against Iran tonight, the ones telling you the Persian menace is the greatest threat we face, are the very same ones demanding that you ignore the invasion of America now in progress from the South. The millions, the tens of millions of foreign nationals living among us illegally, the torrent, more significantly, of Mexican narcotics that has killed and disabled entire generations of Americans. Nobody cares, in case you haven't noticed. Pay no attention to all of that, these very same people tell us. The real threat is Iran. Well, they're liars, and they don't care about you, they don't care about your kids, they're reckless and incompetent, and you should keep all of that in mind as war with Iran looms closer tonight. So listen, first of all, how about that point he's making? Um, and this is no, I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Tucker Carlson, y'all, but in my speech in December, the same day that I went to the White House Christmas reception, I talked about how we could literally take just a sliver of that money that we're wasting in the Middle East and we could take control of our southern border and we could nation build on this continent. Look, I know that we have to crush the enemy when they come for us at our embassies. I know that. And so why won't, you know, absolutely do it. But I also know that what Lindsey Graham is proposing, that we go in with economic sanctions and, you know, kind of put ourselves on a wartime footing prepared to go to war with Iran, that is a mistake. It is a mistake for us to think that we're going to go over there and win a war with Iran and that afterwards, we won't still be doing the same old dance, building military installations, 
sending American troops over there, having Democrats in charge, because a Democrat will be president again at some point, not this time, not in 2020, but some point they'll be back in charge and they will have these status of forces agreements where our troops have to watch young boys be raped in the streets in the Middle East. That, that's what's been going on. You know, the problem that we have really is that Americans don't know what is going on over there. Some of us do. The people who really want to know will dig through the Internet and find out what's going on over there. But most Americans think it's just, you know, American troops carrying around guns and kind of peacekeeping, quote fingers, and that's pretty much it. That's not what's going on. Our men and women are going over there with no clear objective. That's like, why are we still in Afghanistan again? Why are we still spending all these billions of dollars a month over there? So poppy field warlords can uh, build, you know, huge compounds for themselves. That's your money. That's my money that's being spent over there and being wasted. There's also the issue of the entirety of, of like the liberals are saying this is a distraction away from impeachment, which I, there is there an American alive today in a, that, that has thought about impeachment since January 1st or December 25th. Not me. I hadn't even thought about it. In fact, it's almost as if since the impeachment has occurred that it's pretty much over and no one's talking about it. I know Democrats are trying to find a way to run away from it. They don't want to talk about it because it didn't mean anything. They didn't do it for any other reason but to say they impeached him. They're just going to use that to run some ads. And when people see those ads, they're going to yawn and flip the channel. And that's for the few million people who still watch live television. Am I right? Like if they put those on ESPN, you'll be getting up and going refill your little bowl of popcorn or, you know, cashews or whatever it is that you eat while you're watching sports. You know, go get a fresh beer out of the fridge for people who like beer. Whatever. Right. You, people are not going to sit there and listen to we impeached him. OK. Uh now what? I mean, honestly, just because sometimes when people make statements like that, you really have to just gently say, okay, that happened. Now what? Now what do you want to do? Just gently like that. Softly, just like that. Not, not rude. Don't, don't get your hackles up. The same way if, as if a small child came up to you and said, I just got done using the restroom. And I wash my hands and you say, okay, great. Now what do you want to do? Come on over here, sit down, let's read some stories. I mean, it, you know, it's just a statement of fact. They voted to impeach the president of the United States. They had no good reason for doing it. Now what? Go wash your hands, liberals, and come sit over on the sofa and I'll get your bowl of popcorn and we'll get that stack of books over here and we'll spend 20 minutes of quiet reading time. And then after that, if you then don't have any like worksheets that you need to complete. We'll make sure that you can watch one 30 minute show. Yeah, that's all. That's a <laughs> so this whole thing. And I know there's a reason for the president doing what he's doing is this isn't about that. This is about the continuation of the troops and money and, and blood and treasure being spent in Afghanistan and how we're not using that same level of interest. I mean, when is the last time we heard Lindsey Graham get up out of his bed and do a long phone interview with Fox News about what's going on at the southern border, how we should spend more money down there? So there's there's just a lot more to this than, you know, whoop-de-doo, we killed Suleiman. 
I mean, they feel like it was necessary. Okay, they killed him. There's going to be some blowback from it. I'm sure they've prepared and they've thought that through. But what about Afghanistan? Can we get our troops back from there? What about the southern border? Can we do something about that? What about the international terrorist organizations that have not yet been designated so, the drug cartels? Can we do something about them? How about, I mean, just can anybody have more than one subject matter in their brain at a time? Can we just stop only being obsessed with what's going on in the Middle East and actually pay attention to our own areas where we literally, we have our own death tolls here in the United States related to the open border? The drunk driving deaths, 10% of those are illegal aliens. So we could reduce drunk driving deaths by 10% if we simply ended illegal immigration. Like it? I do. How about ending the rapes and the kidnappings and the armed robberies and sexual assaults, et cetera. Why not end all that too? Am I saying we would never have one or we'd never have an illegal alien? Of course not. But do we need these kind of numbers? 50, 60,000 a month is supposed to be a good thing down from 120,000 a month last May. I think we can do better. How about we get down into the single digit thousands per month, like two or 3,000, okay? And, uh, you know, in the chat room, Richard Layton said, we do something about the mentally ill homeless crisis. They're out here killing people, too. Thank you. We have our own problems. We have our own homegrown issues with people who are American citizens. They're mentally ill. They're out killing folk. And we have laws right now that say if you're mentally ill, we can't give you the death penalty. Well, if you're mentally ill and you're out killing folks, maybe we should be able to give you the death penalty. That's so unpopular to say, but I don't understand why. Why is it that someone, by simple virtue of the fact that they're out of their right mind, get to live on forever in perpetuity after killing people when other people who are in their right mind and kill someone for what they feel like was a good reason, they killed them because they thought they might kill them. They killed them because they slept with their wife or stole something. Are these things right? No. But they thought they had a good reason for killing somebody. Maybe they're just psychopathic or they just wanted to kill. Whatever their reasoning was, they felt like they had a great reason for doing it. They did it and then they get the death penalty, which is appropriate. But people who are mentally ill, who maybe they just are out killing people because they want to or some voice told them to do it. And because a voice told them we're supposed to let them off the hook. That's what we do here in this country. So, yeah, we have our own problems and we need to take care of them. It's so, so unpopular for me to say that. But since I'm not here for popularity, it's all good. It's actually it's going to be perfectly fine because... I at least am operating from a place where I've done the research and I understand what's going on here. This is just too much. So what we need is we need an opportunity to have a true discussion about this. And the place for it to happen would be in Congress where elected officials who are representing their constituents would come in and they would have a big discussion about the spending that we're doing. And then they would take a vote, not based on whether or not they want to get reelected, but based on what's right and what's wrong. Will that happen? I don't know. It doesn't look likely. But at least we're having the conversation here. And maybe you have the conversation with your elected official in your district when they're, you know, they're home right now. They're on vacation now. Maybe you talk to them about it now. You know, so uh, that that's I just that was disturbing that the first thing that Lindsey Graham jumped to was now we need to crush them with sanctions there are plenty of people in Iran. I've even interviewed one of their representatives on the show here a couple years ago who he said the Iranian people do not believe the same things as the mullahs and the people in charge. They actually love America and they don't want to be at war with us. 
They want to go back to what they had in the 70s where women could get educations and walk around without those full length sheets, those black sheets on. They wanted to be more like a Western society. And they were until the, the mullahs came back into charge. And now they're, they're living under Sharia oppression. They don't want that. They don't want to be economically sanctioned. We, we have to find a way to punish the people who are in charge, not the people themselves. When they show those rallies where Iranians are jumping up and down and burning flags and screaming death to America, those are the, the mullah acolytes. Those are the kind of crazies who keep in charge, you know, they keep underneath the mullahs and kind of worship them. Those are their sycophants. Most Iranians don't feel that way. And as long as there are some of them there who don't feel that way, isn't it our responsible to find a isn't it our responsibility to find a way to hit back at their leadership without doing as much damage as possible to the women and children and you know the, the little regular people who are just running around trying to live under the Sharia oppression that is their reality? Eh, it's just it's just more than getting all gung ho about the fact that you know, we had to go over there and put down an armed insurrection around our embassy. And then right after that, we were like, yeah, since we've already got people hot and ready in the area, we might as well take out this guy, too. You know what I mean? It's about more than that. So. All right. Now let's pivot over to this white privilege stuff. So are you white? Do you want to know how big of an oppressor you are? Are you black, let's say, like me, permanently tanned? Do you want to know just what type of weapons-grade victim you are? Well, there's a website for that. And it is just so much fun. It's the Intersectionality Score Calculator. And you can find out your intersectionality score at intersectionalityscore.com. When you go there, you'll see uh, just the most, it's, it's a bunch of sliders. It's so easy. And you can go to stacyontheright.com and find it right now, um, my post on it. So you slide the different sliders. You move them with the mouse on your, on your uh, laptop or if you're on your phone doing mobile, you just put your thumb on the little circle and move it to the right or the left. So here are the options that you have to score yourself on intersectionality. White is on one end. The other end is person of color. You just slide over. If you're, if you're, let's say if you're like a, a Mexican or an Asian, you might slide it just a little bit, maybe a quarter of the way. If you're like me and you're permanently tan, you slide it all the way to the right because black is the opposite of white, so I'm going all the way to the right. Straight or gay, you can pick what's part of the spectrum you're on. Male or female, again, it's a slider. Uh, cisgender or transgender, you can slide over to the left. I went all the way to the left for cisgender because I, I'm, I like my husband. He's a man. Um, rich or poor, I went over a little ways because I know if you – are in certain income bracket, they consider you to be like middle class, upper middle class, upper class, and then top 10% of the country, which that's rich. Uh, younger, older. I did slide over a little ways on the older, although I'm in my 40s. And then able-bodied or disabled, English first language or English second language, born in the USA, born elsewhere, more educated or less educated, not Christian or devout Christian, not Muslim, devout Muslim, not Jewish, devout Jewish. Now, after I took the score thing, like once you start sliding it, the score pops up and you can adjust. Well, you can't adjust out of the general area where they have you because they put the majority of the points and whether or not you're white 
and whether or not you're straight or gay and whether or not you're male or female. Those three areas pretty much are the bulk of your privilege score. Then the rest of it tweaks it a tad, but not a ton. Okay. So I was kind of surprised to see that they said I am more privileged than 31% of the population the way that me and my husband live. I was like, wow. So this thing does not, it, it really knocks me back just because I'm black and a woman. And I couldn't fix that unless I changed from being black and a woman. It was the only way to fix my score. Um, it says, do, so I, I actually, in, in my opinion of this whole thing, I find that what they're doing is they, they don't want you to think you can escape your privilege. They, and they want you, if you're black or any minority at all, to own your victimhood to the degree that it outweighs your education, where you live. Now, they do have, I, I have to give it to them, they thought of everything. In the fine print, you can go down and you can select other sliders and add those in and see how that impacts your score. I didn't bother with that because if they're going to peg me as a victim just because I'm a woman and I'm black in America today where Oprah is walking among us and Michelle Obama is the most popular woman in America, quote unquote, then it really doesn't matter what they think or, or what uh, sliders I add. What, what they're saying to me is you're a victim no matter what. There's some white person out there oppressing you no matter what you're doing. I could be at Home Goods with a basket with $1,000 worth of stuff in it, paying cash for it. Um, you know, I could have a million bucks in the bank. I could just be killing it. But because I'm a black woman, I'm still a victim. And that's what they've been teaching our kids and uh, your kids, everybody's kids in public school for the past, I don't know how many years. So that's what brought me to finding my post uh, that I did on my blog. Um, and I linked to it in the post. It's, uh, I got your white privilege. Hold on, I'm going to, I'm going to go to it. So I got your white privilege right here. So I discovered that they were having white privilege conferences across the country way back in 2014. And it was the hashtag they were using was WPC 14. So I shot a video at our house, just sitting in, uh, in our little family room. And I, I know it was a long time ago because the walls are yellow in that room. I'm sitting there and the walls are yellow like they were originally when we moved in. And we've since painted those walls white. Uh, and it says, I'm in a state of shock right now. And this is my blog post from 2014. According to your conference, the accomplishment of my family going back generations simply do not exist. Allow me to explain. You see, I'm black. And your conference contends that this country was built on racism. You contend that a pernicious evil is the foundation of every institution and permeates every aspect of American life, according to you. So much so, your conference attempts to completely negate my very existence. And then I go through and talk about my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and all the things that they were involved in and did as a part of this country. Oh, I'm looking. So we have one kid who's just like just now arrived at the house. And I need to let her in the front door. Oh, there. There, she's already in. Perfect. So in the big scheme of things, this is meant to take away from all of the beautiful, wonderful things that you might have experienced as an American and boil it down to you're black, so you're a victim. You're black, so whites are oppressing you in this country. You're black, and you, you can't have possibly done any of that for yourself. It had to have been liberals in our policies who've given you any opportunity you're white. Well, you didn't build that because you had white privilege that prevented anyone else from competing with you. Therefore, you have, you know, what you have. Now, am I saying that white privilege doesn't exist? Actually, I'm not. I actually think that whites have some privilege in this country. Blacks have some privilege in this country. Many of us have some privilege in this country. 
Um, and it's different kinds of privilege. There are different areas in which it's easier to operate in the public space for a black person than it is for a white person and vice versa. For Asians, there are there are certain spaces where they have some privilege based upon their accomplishments and, and what others would call stereotypes, but what I basically call the realities of living in America today and what people have worked on, what people have placed their concerted effort on. So I, I'm... I'm really angry that this has gone from back in 2014 when I discussed this five years ago. Not only is the conference still going on, I provide a link to that so you can see that they're having one this year, but there's still a bunch of old white people who are liberals sitting around telling young black people who are attending the conference that they're victims and we're not doing anything to stop it over on the right as far as our communications and our way of presenting our ideas. There has to be a part of this discussion that goes to the heart of what people are saying, um, what, they're, what they're doing, how they're living. When you're sitting up with a $1,000 smartphone and a custom latte on your desk, you know, on your Ikea furniture in your condo, and you've got your, you know, hybrid vehicle out front, and you're sitting in a group, a mixed group, where everybody, you're all in the same income bracket, you're up and coming in your late 20s, you're earning sixty-eight dollars or $70,000 a year, you're college educated, you have student loans, your parents live in the suburbs, you're a part of the American dream, yet you're sitting up, you know, registering for a conference that's going to teach you that the white kid who's sitting there with the black kid and the Asian kid, you're all young adults sitting there, that the white one is the oppressor of the two others, even though the Asian one probably earns more money than the other two. Hmm? That's the kind of crazy we're working with. So, you know, I want to I draw this into our Christian worldview as we close out here. And I just want to point out to you that if you believe, and I'm, I'm not talking about you, like if you're listening to this and you're like, man, this is a bunch of garbage, I'm with you. But we have to take this out into the world as well. As Christians, we cannot believe that there is some oligarch, some white man somewhere orchestrating everything that happens to us. And this thought can creep in anywhere. You don't think I had the enemy come at me with these attacks after the contract cancellation last year? Wow, they took this from you. No, I don't have anything that God doesn't want me to have, and I'm not going to do anything that he doesn't want me to do if it's not a part of his plan for my life. Even when I make mistakes, God works them out for my good, and my life proceeds as planned, as ordained beforehand. It's already, it's already finished. So I have the free will to live for him or not live for him, but no man can take from me what he has for me. At the same thing, I can't snatch anything from myself and take anything from myself that he doesn't ha has not ordained for me to have. If I do it, it will just work out to my detriment and I will lose it eventually anyway, right? So if that's the truth, and we know it is, then we know that these are just lies from the pit of hell, a way to convince people that they cannot do what God has put them on this earth to do. And we have to go out and tell people that. We can't be afraid. We can't worry about what their reaction will be. We can't be like, oh my goodness, what if, what if you don't tell people what God asked you to tell and somebody else has to go do it for you? That's not what God has for you. He has for you to tell those in your circle the truth about this nonsense. So, you know, if some, you hear somebody talk about white privilege, just tell them, come on. You believe some invisible white person or some white person you've never met is in charge of your destiny? Or do you believe that almighty God who created everything that you see, everything that you will ever see, 
who spoke everything into existence by the power of his own word, who sent his son to die for you, and who now sits at the right hand of the Father pleading on your behalf, you believe that someone down here on earth is more powerful than that? The Godhead? Three in one? What? Come on. You do not believe that. (laughs) That's what you have to say. You don't believe that. And if they say, well, I do, well, then you just say, well, please come and talk to me again. If, if you feel like talking about this again, let's talk about it again. I'd love to open up the scriptures with you and show you some scriptures and just talk with you. I'm not trying to downgrade you or, or you know, this doesn't have to be an argument, but could you, could you just, maybe you just want to come sit with me in church. Would you come sit with me in church on Sunday and afterwards we'll go to brunch and we'll just talk about this stuff. I just would love to keep talking about this with you. Invite them to church, take them to get something to eat. It doesn't have to be fancy. And keep the conversation going because God has that person in your sight line for a reason for you to tell them the truth that there is no man who can assail you when God is for you. And guess what? He is for you. He's for me. He's for all of us. So there is no man that can that he can't men can't do anything to you. Who can come against the almighty? Nobody. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He took the keys from Satan and the the keys to hell. He took those from Satan himself. If the demons and Satan knew what Jesus was doing on the cross, they never would have inspired the crucifixion because they would never have wanted him to give that kind of power to us to be in direct relationship with Father God and have access to the throne room where we can plead and we can go in and we can say, Lord, I got this problem. This person hurt me and I want to go in and get some vengeance going on. But I know that if I leave this with you, you will repay and I can go on free and light and airy. Lord, please take this from me. It's too much for me to bear. I need to forgive this person and move on. If Satan knew we'd be able to do that, he never ever would have, he would have been like, no crucifixion. Nope. Nope, nobody, nobody touched this guy. Leave him alone. Leave him be. <laughs> so look what we have. We have that at our disposal. So you're saying some guy, some man who, you know, maybe fired you, who happens to be white, or some man who maybe, you know, whatever the thing is that you think that they did or that they actually did that has damaged you or what have you, that that is greater than God? It is not. It can't be. It is not. So tell someone the truth. The intersectionality score calculator is on the internet. It could easily be like they could lose their, uh, you know, how sometimes the internet providers will drop someone if they have some content out there they don't like, and then you have to try to find another place to host your site and all that drama. This website could be down. It could be up and nobody could visit it. It's irrelevant. Uh, The only reason I'm bringing it up and pointing it out to you and placing it in the links is so you can familiarize yourself with the garbage so you know how to debunk it the next time someone encounters you with it. That's the whole purpose. All right. We could keep talking, but it's Friday and you guys need to get into the weekend. And so do I. I want to see what's going on with the little ones who are just returning. And by little, I mean 16. Returning from sleepover and all that stuff. And um, it's Friday. Check out StacyOnTheRight.com. We have new content up there for you. Have a fantastic weekend. Don't forget to visit the house of the Lord and get your refilling going on. And I'll be back with you on Monday. In fact, 
It's Larry O'Connor on Monday. I'm filling in for him again. God bless.